0: Bye. Uh-huh. Bye. Uh-huh. scared. Uh, But I was reminded how to say no. Uh, One day we were, uh, we went up to the top of Mount Olives a couple days ago, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday of this past week, and and went up to the top of Mount Olives. You're looking down to the Kidron Valley, and across is the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. You see the temple dome or or the the dome of the rock and all of that stuff that's sitting there in the temple court area. We get off the bus, and in Israel, we're literally one of the first groups to do tourism and so everywhere you went you had no lines which is amazing i'll always be disappointed every other time i go to israel from here on out because there will be a line i have to stand in but we had no lines and all of the vendors were very happy to see us because they hadn't had no business for two years and so we get off the bus at the mount of olives and man this group of uh, vendors comes and just beginning to push their stuff on us and all those things and and i hadn't experienced that in a couple years and so i had this guy this older guy who came up to me and he had bracelets, metal bracelets, kind of moved in the middle, and and uh, he's trying to sell them. He's like five or six dollars, something like that each. And I'm like, no, 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 I don't want any. No, no. Like multiple times he comes and tries to sell me his his bracelets, and each time I was like, no, I don't want those. And so finally he left, and he came back just out of the blue, and uh, he's like, uh, you married? Yeah, I'm married. He's like, you have children? I have three daughters. So he hands me four bracelets, right? Apparently we did not fix it, Adam. It is not what I thought it was to fit. Uh, we had the same problem uh, in the first service. But uh, so he hands him these bracelets. He's like, "It's my gift to you." I'm like, "No, no, I can't take that." He's like, "No, no, it's my gift to you. Take them, please." I'm like, "No, I, really, I cannot do that. Let me pay you something." And he's like, "Okay, six dollars a piece." <laughs> what? What six? I I literally, I said, I was like, you just gave them to me for free. Now you want me to pay you six dollars a piece? I was like, I'll pay you something. Here's five bucks. I took one of them and walked away. And uh, so, you know, I was just reminded how important it is to be able to say no. But for us as Americans in our culture, saying no can be kind of difficult, right? Uh, it's, it's, It's true because we're not a real confrontational culture. You know, you go to some places in the world and it's expected that you're going to say no. In fact, in an Arabic culture, if you don't emphatically stress at least three times that they need to take whatever you're giving them, then they don't believe it's important. In fact, when we used to go to Barcelona a few years ago and did mission work among the Moroccans there who have immigrated into Spain, uh, we go down to the port as they're getting onto the ferry to go back to Morocco. Mark, you nod on your head. You know what I'm talking about. You have to actually say, to fuddle, take this. To fuddle, to fuddle, to fuddle. Take this over and over again. Because if you don't stress that it's important that they take this, they're not going to take it. Because their culture is, no, 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 right? And so we don't have that sort of culture here. We, we, we're we really uh, nice and easy going. And, and so we don't know how to barter. We don't know how to say no uh, we go into a culture like that, and, and they may say it's $50, and we're like, okay, I'll pay $50, when they don't expect you to pay 50 In fact, if you pay $50 for what they're selling for $50, they know they take an advantage. you. They think you're an idiot because you're not supposed to take, pay $50. I remember in Haiti a long time ago, right out of college, I went down there, and this guy who's selling these drums on the side of the road, beautiful drum, goat skin on top, and uh, he, he was trying to sell it to me for 50 bucks, and I'd already been told, never pay the price, that they are saying. But we don't know how to do that in America. We, we don't know how to say no very easily. And yet, as we think about saying no, it's really important that we know how to say no. Uh, it's, learned, it's, it's something that we need to learn. In fact, here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Let me make this quote. He said, learn to say no, it will be of more use to you than being able to read Latin. Now, I don't really know how well Latin is going to benefit me in my world that I walk in and live in. I don't read the Latin Vulgate Bible. I don't do anything in the Latin, but I understand the principle that he's saying there, that there are some things in life that I need to know how to say no to. I need to know how to say no to certain things, especially when temptations come my way. I need to know how to say no. Now, with that said, I I do believe and I am thankful that the Christian life is not just no. That there are some things, a lot of things that we can and should say yes to. But at the same time, there are things that we need to say no to. Jesus understood this. Jesus recognized this in his life and in the ministry he was going to lead. And so if you have your Bibles open there to Luke chapter 4, I want us to look at the first 13 verses. And then I want to unpack them as we talk about temptation this morning. Look at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. That's key. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all of this authority and their glory... For it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up unless you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Luke here, as we know, is writing his gospel to give an orderly account so that Theophilus and everyone else who is going to read it would have certainty concerning the things about Jesus and his ministry. And is what we've seen in the first three chapters of the Gospel of Luke is that Luke is presenting Jesus to us as God's Son. He's really trying to seek that that age-old question of who is Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? How are we to understand Jesus? And what Luke is writing is, is to show us and to prove to us that Jesus is God the Son. He is God's Son. That's the purpose for which he is writing. And so in all of this, what we're going to see over the, today and in the next few weeks is that Jesus, as God's the Son, carries three offices. He has three roles, if you will. He is priest, he's prophet, and he is the king. And all of this is for the well-being of his people. Jesus is our priest so that we can experience all that he has for us. He's the prophet who reveals the word of God for us. And he is the king of all kings. As we look here in the Luke chapter 4, as we look at what Luke is saying, he is speaking things that the other gospel writers have said about, or specifically the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and also Luke. And so as we look here in the synoptic gospels, what we see is that each of them, when they talk about the baptism, when they lay out the baptism of Jesus, it is followed by the temptation of Jesus as well. Luke here uses it as his last preparatory story before launching and introducing the ministry of Jesus. So in Luke chapter 3, you've got Luke sharing here that the Father is is voicing his affirmation, voicing his approval of Jesus as the Son, right? Right? You also have that followed by the latter part of Luke chapter 3, the genealogy of Jesus. And so what Luke does is he says, the father voices his approval. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That is followed by this genealogy, which takes Jesus's lineage from Mary to Adam to God, showing that he is the son of God. And then we move into chapter 4, and what we see is the devil comes and he begins to dispute the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of this Luke is using to describe in preparatory fashion, the ministry of Jesus that's going to come because Jesus is going to do ministry as God, the son. So we see this temptation taking place, this story of his temptations. In fact, what what we're seeing here is that Jesus is not led out to the wilderness by the devil. And that's I don't know about you, but that's probably what we would expect, that Jesus is baptized and then all of a sudden the devil comes along and forces him into the desert, forces him into the wilderness. But that's not what Luke tells us. He tells us that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. In other words, the Spirit of God, the Godhead itself, is going out to engage the enemy Maybe in the enemy's territory, but there's going to be this this 40 days of temptation taking place in the wilderness, not not at the direction of the enemy, but at the direction of God himself. He's led out into this wasteland, this solitary, deserted location where the enemy is going to tempt the Lord Jesus. Now, where is that? That's the big question. Where does this all take place? Most people believe that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, which we looked at a couple Sundays ago, just south of the Sea of Galilee. In the Jordan River, it would have been slightly southeast of the city of Jericho. And then just to the west of that would have been the wilderness, the mountains. I don't know if the pictures come up on the screen yet. There it is. This picture I took uh, last Sunday from Qumran. This is the site where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. In fact, if we you look at another picture, you would see the, uh, the cave where they were found. But this is just slightly south of where Jesus most likely was baptized. I'm showing you this so that you can kind of put a visual picture of where Jesus would have went into the wilderness. This is not a place where there's a lot of lush green pastures or forest or anything. It's barren wasteland. The only thing that can survive here are goats. In fact... Uh, We saw ibexes roaming the the, the countryside there at this park that we were at. That's about the only thing that can survive this type of terrain. And so Jesus is led by the Spirit out into this wilderness, and there he is tempted for 40 days. Three specific temptations are what's given to us in the Synoptic Gospels. That's what's given us here in Luke chapter 4. But the tense of the verb suggests that Jesus was tempted throughout the duration of, Of those 40 days. In fact, Luke gives us even more details. He says that during this time, Jesus ate nothing. For 40 days, Jesus fasted. For 40 days, Jesus ate nothing, which means that on the backside of this, when it's all said and done, Jesus is hungry. I've read this passage earlier in the first service, and I kind of just stopped for a moment and I said, well, that's kind of understandable, right? Makes sense. You're hungry when you haven't eaten for 40 days. So Jesus would have been physically hungry. Uh, weak. Jesus would have been physically famished. He would have felt like his body is dying. He is hungry. This is another indication that Jesus was God in human flesh. He wasn't just uh, someone who seemed to be a man. He was the God-man. And the devil here saw an opportunity to bring Jesus down by tempting him with provision, verse 3. He had been without food for six weeks. Surely his body felt like it was dying. And so as the Son of God... He could have easily invoked his supernatural powers and caused something to turn into something edible to quench his hunger, and that's probably what his body was saying: "Do it now, man! I'm hungry, right?" What happens when you haven't went uh, you 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 went a few hours without eating? What is your body saying to you? Need to eat, right? You kind of get that squimish feeling. You you feel lightheaded, a little dizzy. Your body's tingling. Jesus was feeling that. Times 40, he was hungry. Now, we look at this, and perhaps as we read it, we might think this temptation is somewhat benign, but I want you to know it was not benign at all. This was a major temptation coming from the enemy. Think about this. As the Son of God, Jesus had come to do whose will? His will or the Father's? He came to do the Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done, he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. Here, Satan is tempting Jesus to suspend living like a human and momentarily go outside the natural order in, to, in order to meet his physical needs apart from the Father's provision. And yet, Jesus answers, It is written. Three times, Jesus is either going to say, It is written, or He's going to say something similar. It is said. Jesus is resting in God's Word. Jesus is resting in God's authority there. He's armed with the sword of the Spirit. He's armed with the Word of God. And just as Israel was sustained by God in the wilderness, Jesus is going to be sustained by the Word of God and by the provision of God to meet His every need. Bread does not keep Him alive. Jesus understood the Father does that. Luke goes on, he tells us that next the devil caught up the Lord in a vision and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. The term used there is not the word cosmos, which would speak of the created world. You might think of the heavens, you might think of the earth itself. He's not using that word, he's using a different term that speaks of inhabited world. So what the enemy is doing to Jesus is he's catching him up in this vision and he's saying, hey Jesus, if you will bow to me, if you will worship me, all the kingdoms of the world, all the inhabited places of this world will follow you. They will coalesce around you. I will give you the keys to the kingdom if you will but bow down and worship me. I like how Archie Hughes describes this temptation. He says it this way, Jesus was made to hear the rustling of the world's flags flying in his honor He could win the world without paying the enemy promise. No weeping over Jerusalem, no crucifixion whatsoever. The great countries of the world, that meaning Israel's elect, the mighty Roman Empire and all of the rest, would open their gates to their new king. This is what Satan offered the Lord Jesus. And it was his his offer to give. It was his right to make this appeal to Jesus. You see, God the Father... excuse me, God the Father, had given the enemy a a limited amount of sovereignty over this world. He is the God of this age. And so for him to offer to Jesus this opportunity made sense. It's his to give. Jesus understood that. He understood what that would have meant if he would have taken the offer. He understood, yes, it is a shortcut, but shortcut would have shortcut redemption. It would have taken Jesus out of the equation. We would no longer have a sinless Savior following the will of the Father. We would have had a short-cutted Redeemer, which means no redemption. Jesus recognized the temptation. He responded with Deuteronomy 6.13, which is a warning against the attraction of idolatry. You see, in our Savior, there was no compromise to the Father's will. Luke's climax in these temptations takes Jesus to Jerusalem takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, we don't know exactly where in the temple area that would have been. We don't know if Jesus went up there with Satan and stood on the temple itself or if he stood on the wall surrounding the temple court. You're going to see a picture in just a moment. Most people believe that it was probably on the southeast side, standing there on the wall, overlooking the Kidron Valley. This is a picture I took uh, of... uh, part of that wall. You'll see the beautiful big stones on the bottom go up several feet. And then there's smaller stones. That's because the G, or the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and they toppled the wall there. And so other kingdoms or other conquerors who came in in the centuries after that, Ottomans and the Crusaders and the like built upon those and they were destroyed and built upon it. In fact, what we're looking at in here in this picture is lots of history that we're standing upon if you were to go below where i took this picture that wall the herodian wall with those big stones went down at least another hundred feet we saw it in some in some uh in tunnels that we were in why do i share this with you it's because very likely satan took jesus up on top of this this wall here it would have stood perhaps 450 feet or more above the people below, overlooking the Kidron Valley. This would have been an incredible sight for that day and age. The people below him would have seen him. And so what Satan did to Jesus is quoted from Psalm 91 verses 11, 12, and says, Jesus, you want to be those, you want to be the son of God who follows the word of God. Here's the word of God. The word of God says that if you jump He's going to catch you. The angels will guard you. The angels will protect you. If you want to be the son of God who follows the word of God, here's an opportunity to do that. Just jump. Test God in this. Perhaps even he took him up to that pinnacle and says, you need to jump because you're supposed to be the savior. Here are all of these people down below. If they see you jump and they see the angels of heaven coming down and, and guarding you and protecting you and catching you, surely they will follow you as the Messiah. He's tempting him to test God the Father. And Jesus responds, it is said. It is said. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus answers with Scripture in Deuteronomy 6.16, 6, 6, 16, resisting this temptation and remaining faithful to the Father. The Luke tells us in verse 13 that the devil ended this temptations until a more opportune time. How are we supposed to understand that? I don't think we understand it, meaning that the enemy no longer tempted or had any sort of spiritual warfare against Jesus. In fact, we see the exact opposite throughout his ministry. He is constantly under spiritual warfare throughout those three years. What it means is this. Satan did not directly attack Jesus until he entered Judas Iscariot and betrayed him in the garden. Jesus was under constant attack. So what are we supposed to learn from all of this? What are we to learn from these 13 verses talking about the temptation of Jesus Christ? There's three truths that I want you to walk away with this morning from these verses. Here's the first one. Satan works to negate everything affirmed by God. He's always negating the things that God affirms. In chapter 3, if you want to go back with me a few weeks... We saw there God's paternity test affirming the sonship of Jesus Christ, right? Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. I mentioned it just a moment ago. And when Jesus is baptized, when he goes under the water and he comes back out, the heavens open, the spirit descends as a dove. I I can't tell you how beautiful it was to to see there in Jerusalem, even in other places, to see a white dove flying around. The Holy Land. It's just like, wow, that's I, there. It is. This is what it would have looked like. So the Spirit of God descends in a dove upon Jesus there, and the Father voices his affirmation: "This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased." That's the affirmation. That's the the, the thing that God is affirming in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. Satan, though shows up on the scene not to applaud and celebrate sonship. No, Jesus' sonship. No, Satan comes to cast doubt and dispute Jesus' sonship. Now, we should not be surprised in this. If you know how Satan works, that's what he does. He always negates what God affirms. It goes all the way back to the very beginning, right? You begin to look at the Bible. You begin to read the story of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. God creates all of that there is, and what does he affirm? He says it's good. He says it's very good. And then the very next chapter, chapter three, the serpent comes and he begins to negate what God has affirmed. Did God really say? Is this really what the Lord says? Is this really how the Lord is describing it? Has God told you that, that all that is yours is good? But do you think that's really true? There's this tree that you can't eat from. Really what's happening here is God is withholding from you, Eve. God is withholding from you what is best. God is not allowing you to be all that you can be. God is restricting. God's not giving you freedom. He casts doubt and he negates what God has affirmed. Sound familiar in your own life? Does this sound, what, God, uh, just sound what, the, the, what the enemy whispers in your ear, negating what God has said about you? And, and so in attacking at the very beginning what God has affirmed, what he's negating is very basic things for us. He's negating the institution of marriage. He's negating the institution of the family. he's negating work and sexuality and gender and authority and every good thing God has ordained shouldn't be surprised by this. His demons work overtime to tempt you into going against the good things God has affirmed. That's what he does. You see, the enemy wants to wreck your life. The enemy wants to wreck your family. He wants to wreck your marriage. He wants to wreck your reputation and your testimony. He wants to wreck your name. He's always negating what God has affirmed in your life. There's a second thing we need to see here. How does he do all of this? The second truth is this. Satan seizes upon human weakness. He seizes upon human weakness. In verse 2, Luke informs us that Jesus had eaten nothing for 40 days. And so he was hungry. That meant he was physically weak. Satan recognizes this and seizes an opportunity to exploit it. This is true only, uh, or this is truly one of the passions of his devilish experience. He wants to see the weakness in your life and he wants to exploit it. And so you need to know what the weaknesses are in your life because you need to know that the enemy is going to exploit those. If the enemy did that for Jesus, don't you think he's going to do that to you? Of course, he's going to do that to you. Satan understands that flesh is weak, Satan understands it in a way that we oftentimes forget. Or maybe even want to deny. Satan understands that our flesh is a whole lot like water. It's going to follow the path of least resistance. Resistance. So we need to understand that. Satan's going to exploit the weaknesses in our lives. And so what does he do? He offers an easier option. So as Christians who desire to obey and honor God, we need to be able to recognize the temptations and the better offers that he presents. I love how William Vanderhoven wisely said, he says at every fork in the road, the devil is dangling the carrot down the wrong path. How many times have you come to a fork in the road and there's this wonderful carrot dangling before you and you take that fork and what does it do? It doesn't lead you to greener pastures. It doesn't lead you to great sustenance. It leads you to destruction and despair and all kinds of danger. Who puts the carrot there? The enemy does. He seizes the opportunity of our human weakness. So how do we resist the temptations? How do we choose the right path? Here's the third truth we need to understand. And I'm going to unpack this for the rest of our time together. Satan is defeated through Christ. That's the truth we need to understand here. As we think about the temptations that we face, Satan is defeated through Christ. What do we learn from this passage? We learn that Jesus does not succumb to the devil's temptations. He battles each one of them with God's word. He battles each one of them with faith and trust in the Father's provision. So we obviously find in Jesus a great model for standing on the word of God. We find in Jesus a great model for believing God's word, trusting God's word, uh, standing on God's word. But is this the message? Is this the primary message of this passage that Luke, through this inspiration of the Spirit, is presenting to us. Is that the message that we're supposed to walk away with, that Jesus is the model to follow? So Jesus resisted the temptation by hiding God's word in his heart and resisting. Is that what we're to walk away from? I don't think that's the primary message. I think that's a secondary message. But I don't believe it's the primary message Luke is presenting to us here. What I believe Luke is leading us to understand is that Jesus endured temptation in our place. Jesus conquered temptation in our place. Jesus defeated the enemy in our place. And so by trusting in him, looking to him, what we see in Jesus is he's our high priest. He's the one who stands in the gap between God the Father and we as sinful humanity. What do I mean by this? Let me read from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Here's what the writer of Hebrews talks about when he's discussing Jesus as the high priest. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, today Jesus sits enthroned as our high priest in heaven because he's the one who is conquered. He sits enthroned in heaven as the one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows the temptations that we face. How how do we know that he knows that? Luke tells us that he endured temptation, not just there in the wilderness, but throughout his life, throughout his ministry, he endured those temptations. And the writer of Hebrew tells us he did it without sin. Not one time. Does he succumb to the temptations of the enemy? Instead, every single time, he wins the battle. He's not like the first Adam. He's not like the Adam who there in the garden fell to the gorgeous serpent. He's not like the nation of Israel who wandered around in the wilderness for those 40 years and continually gave in to their weaknesses. I mean, all the time they're grumbling and complaining and fussing and fighting and falling into sin. Israel was the people who stood there and watched God do amazing things, miraculous things in Egypt during the Exodus. They get on the other side. They don't even get to the other side of the Red Sea, right? Right? They get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they see what's left of Pharaoh and his army coming down on them. And they say, Moses, did you bring us out here to kill us? I would, Man, if I was Moses, I would have walked by those people with that staff that he had and hit every one of them on the head. Right? I'm sure that's what Moses wanted to do. You bunch of faithless heathens. God just saved your backsides. And you think that I brought you out here to kill you? No, God is doing everything to preserve you. Just... In fact, I think that's what he says. Shut up and watch. That's what he says to him on the banks of the Red Sea. Just shut up and watch what God's going to do. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is not faithless, Jesus is faithful, which means he's our high priest. He's an ever present help in our times. Of need, He stands in the gap for us. The writer of Hebrew goes on in chapter 5 and he explains that Jesus attained this position and he attained this role as the sinless son of God. And so today, Hebrews 7, he is the guarantor of a better covenant. His cross, his sacrifice was final and sufficient. He is our high priest. And so the personal application for this, how do we resist temptation? Here's the best strategy for you. Run to Jesus as your high priest. He is our high priest, and we run to him. What does all this mean? More than likely, if you've been in church long, you've heard this passage preached, you've heard it taught in small group, some sort of situation, you've heard somebody expound these verses, and in doing so, you probably heard it presented as a model to follow, right? Someone's taught you, hey, Jesus said, it is written, it is written, it is said. So what we need to do is we need to take the word of God and we need to hide it in our hearts, right? Psalm 119, I've hidden God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him. That's a good verse. Jesus basically stands on the word of God and says, I will not give in to these temptations. And so you've heard this taught that we need to hide God's word in our heart and we need to stand on the word of God and we need to resist the temptation. Jesus is a model to follow. That's what we've heard. That's a secondary point. But I think that when we begin to try to do that, we will fail every single time. You may win some of the battles, but what's going to happen is, is that you and I, because our flesh is weak, we have a tendency to build up this mindset and approach to life that we can do it on our own, right? I know these Bible verses, I can resist sin. Man, I know that I don't have to look at pornography because uh, like Job, I've made a covenant with my eyes and I'm not going to look lustful on a young woman, a young virgin. You know those verses, man? We've been taught that kind of stuff. But does that really help you in the battle at that moment? Hopefully it does. But I know what happens to men, women too. The temptation many times is too great. I, I've, made a co- or I've, I've committed myself to, to not speak uh, false words or to not to do sinful things. And we know the verses that go along with these temptations that we face. But what happens in the midst of those temptations is many times we succumb to the temptation. It's not because we don't know the Word. It's not because we haven't memorized it. It's not because we have it hidden in our heart. I think the reason we fall into temptation is because we trust in our ability to live out of that Scripture rather than leaning on Jesus as the priest who stands in on our behalf. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's a great story. I wished in Israel this past couple of weeks we could have visited the site. But there's a battle that takes place between Ebenezer and Aphek. I think the Jews are standing in Ebenezer and the Philistines are standing in Aphek. And somewhere in between of that, there's a battle that takes place. And Israel, 1 Samuel chapter 4 tells us, Israel's defeated before the Philistines. And they're like, wow, how did this happen? And so they're taken back. That day, they were defeated. They go back to their camp. They begin to lick their wounds. They begin to think about what we need to do better. What's the strategy? Do we flank them? Do we come in this way? Who do we put out there first? What's the trial? I don't know what was going through their mind, but in all of that strategy they, that night, they begin to think, we were defeated because we didn't bring our secret weapon. We need to go get our secret weapon. And what was the secret weapon? The Ark of the Covenant. So they decide to send some people to Shiloh, get the Ark of the Covenant, where literally the, it's the personification of the presence and the power of God. And so they think, if we have the Ark of the Covenant marching before us, no enemy can stand. So they bring it into the camp. First Samuel t- chapter 4 tells us that the Philistines heard all of that rumbling going on in the camp. And I don't know if they're marching or dancing or yelling or all of that, but they heard the ruckus there, and the Philistines were fearful. And yet they marched out in battle the next day and defeated the people of God. They took the Ark of the Covenant. They brought it back to their own town. And I don't have time to get into that story. we get into 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, we begin to see the curses that came upon them. They eventually sent it back to Israel. But here's the point in all that. Israel thought that if they had the Ark of the Covenant, that they couldn't be defeated. They thought that was the key to their victory. They thought that if they had this, this religious object then they could resist and defeat the enemies before them. Here's what we try to do as Christians. I know Bible verses. I go to church. I'm in small group. I'm in a D group. I have Christian friends. I listen to Christian music. I've made this covenant. I've made this decision. And, and so surely all the temptations that come out come about in my life, I can defeat them. I can resist them because I am strong. But what happens in your spiritual life? You fall like everyone else does. Now you may win some battles here and there, but you're defeated many times just like everyone else. Why? It's because your faith is in the wrong thing. Your faith is in this object of religiosity. It's in this object of spirituality. It's in this object of even the word of God. Now, I'm not going to tell you this morning that Psalm 119 verse 11 is not something you need to live by. You need to hide God's word in your heart, but not for your sake, but for the sake of Jesus and the spirit of God to draw that out of your life. It's not you that wins the battle. It's Jesus who wins the battle for you. We lean into him. We don't white-knuckle ourselves through this lie thinking, if I can just try harder and do more and, 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 and resist even greater, then surely I can have victory. No, you need to understand that you are weak, but Jesus is strong. So as we read Luke 4, 1 through 13, and we talk about Jesus' temptations, they are not primarily a model for us to follow in saying, hey, if I'll do this and this and this, then I'll get this. We need to look at it and say, Jesus did that for me. I'm just grateful. Man, man, he's the priest that stands in before me, and, and he's the one who gives me victory. If it wasn't for him, I would be a defeated, defeated foe. But I'm grateful for Jesus. But what we want in our Christian life is the same thing we want in our American life. Give me the equation, and I'll do it myself. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. You just tell me how to do it. Tell me what arc I got to march out in front of my life, and I'll do that, and I'll win the victory. And guess what comes with that? I'll get the glory for it. Man, you're such a great Christian. Man, you're doing so wonderful. God's doing such great things. We love that applaud. We love that, spat, that pat on the back. We love all of that because we... I'm going to say as American Christians, but I don't think that's necessarily fair. I think it's human nature. We love to do things ourselves. And I love this microphone. (laughs) It's a demon in the microphone. We're going to resist that temptation to be distracted by it, even as I bring attention to it. But that's what we do. That's what we do. So our best strategy to resist temptation is to run to Jesus as our high priest, Here's what I want you to understand about temptation this morning. Every temptation is, among other things, an opportunity for getting closer to God. So as we think about Jesus being our high priest, as we think about Jesus winning the victory, as we think about the things that that the enemy brings against us in our life, let's let's not look at them as these super negative things, as negative as they are. Let's look at them as an opportunity to lean into Jesus. Man, how can I get closer to Jesus in this? How can I just rest in Jesus and just trust that he's going to help me walk through this difficulty, walk through this temptation, walk through these these dicey situations. How can I get closer to Jesus in my life? That's what it's drawing us to. We need to hide God's word in our heart, not so we can uh, rattle off a bunch of verses and think that we're really cool and strong. We need to know verses because they draw us to God. Hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against him, not just so I can look really strong, but but so I can understand I'm really weak. I need God. I need His Word speaking in my mouth. Why? Because I'm weak. Traveling through Israel this past couple weeks, you know, I always heard, I've heard all my pastor buddies who have been before and others, they always say, you'll never read your Bible the same. And that's true. I'll probably never read my Bible the same. But traveling around those sites and seeing all those stories reminded me of what I've always known. That as humans, specifically Israel, we have a tendency to fall away. We have a tendency to become so comfortable with the things of God that we lose sight of God himself. And that's the story you see throughout scripture. You see this, I'm with God and then I'm not with God and things get really bad and I'm with God. You read the book of Judges and see that really clearly on display. But that's what happened. We got so close. In fact, my translator all week he is what I would describe as a secular Jew. He has a tattoo. He's got an earring. I mean, that's right. I read that in Leviticus last week while I was with him. And I didn't bring that up, by the way. <laughs> I thought about it a few things. Like, hey, man, this morning in my devotion time, I read in Leviticus, you're not supposed to have tattoos and an earring. Could you kind of justify this for how you live your life? But he's a secular Jew, and yet he's phenomenal at what he does. I talked about that one of the sites that we at. I don't remember which side but I was teaching at every site. And I, I just kind of pointed that out one day. It might have been when we were in Gethsemane. As Jesus comes to Gethsemane, as he's about to be betrayed, he weeps, or the Mount of Olives, one of those two, they're real close to each other. But he comes and he looks at the city of Jerusalem from the other hillside and he weeps over them. Why is he weeping? It's because they're so close to the things of God and missing it completely. And that's where I believe my tour guide was. I believe that's where we are sometimes. We're so close to the things of God and we miss it by a mile. Why? Because we're so focused on ourselves. I don't know where that's hitting you this morning, but I know what's going on in the life of our church is a lot of things. People have lost loved ones, they're battling sickness, there's family issues and financial issues and, and whatever. Maybe you're dealing with this personal sin. Here's what I want you to know this morning. Jesus loves you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus is here to help you if you'll just let him. Stop trying to white-knuckle it and just say, God, I need a priest in my life. I need someone who will stand in for me, and that is Jesus. So I'm going to invite Ricky, wherever Ricky is. If you'll come up here and just begin to play, and I'm going to pray for us. And and just ask God to move in our hearts this morning. Ask God to just challenge us and, and grow us. Maybe this morning you need to give your life to Jesus. I don't know. Maybe the Lord's been leading you in that. I... I think I told you a couple Sundays ago that I was going to be meeting with a lady that's been attending our church for a number of months uh, the following morning. And I, I did that right before we left to go to Dulles. And I got to lead that lady to faith in Christ that morning. What a glorious thing that was. I don't know if that's where you're at this morning, but if it is, I want to encourage you to say yes to Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you're a good God, a God who loves us, a God who cares for us, we thank you that you love us and care for us so much that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to live a, a life and to die as a sacrifice for us, to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be restored and renewed to the relationship and the creation that we were made for. And Lord, this morning we also just recognize that even as a believer, even as a follower of Jesus, we have a tendency to to fall away. We many times describe it as walking at a guilty distance. Sometimes we can become so comfortable with the things of God that it becomes just religious spirituality. It becomes self-righteousness. We think that we're sufficient in of ourselves, and rather than trusting and leaning into you, we lean into ourselves. And that's that weakness that the devil knows about, and he exploits it. So God, this morning, I pray that you'd help us to come to a, a place where we recognize our weakness. That we recognize that we are nothing without Jesus. We can't do anything for our salvation, but we can't even do anything to walk in our salvation. We need Jesus in all of that. That's why we never get beyond the gospel. And so this morning, help us to run to you. God, if we're... Walking in sin today, even as a believer, I pray that we would look to Jesus and come broken and confess it and repent of it and receive forgiveness and begin to walk in that news, not in our own strength, but in the strength and power of Jesus. Father, I pray for those who need to know Jesus as the Lord and Savior, that they would be like that lady just a couple weeks ago who said, I want to take the next step. I want to put my faith in Jesus. God, we're going to sing for a moment or two. And we just trust that your spirit is going to lead us. our prayer is that we would be responsive to that. In Jesus' name. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.